Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In today's discussion, we're going to have the opportunity to go back through all of the material that we've looked at to date and basically just revisit the laws of evidence with a view acutely to problem solving. Now, in relation to the exam that you'll be sitting, there are certain general tips that we can observe. Firstly, when we come to look at past papers, it's clear that the chief examiner has clearly labelled the subject matter of each question. So, for instance, if you're being asked a question that's primarily about evidence, that's tagged at the start of the question, which is an enormous help. So that focuses your attention. So where we've observed as we've gone, for instance, that there might be a linkage to some point of criminal procedure or there might be a point of linkage to ethics, we need to prioritise the call of the question, which is clearly relating to subject matter within evidence. And note that it's always a PS where you might try to link the subject matter to some other area of law. So where the chief examiner has labelled a question as relating to evidence, the marks are not predominantly going to fall with that last little point. That is just a way of polishing your primary answer. In relation to each question in any exam you sit, it's important to read the call of the question very carefully. So note what the chief examiner is asking and address that question very carefully. Now, just to take you back to revision that you might have learned at university um, in relation to legal problem-solving strategy or if um, you studied in the era in which I studied, you might never have been told this explicitly. But when it comes to legal problem-solving in a format such as the bar exam, the way that the best in the business suggests that you set out the answer is to identify the issue posed, which is the what the call of the question is designed to elicit. So for instance, if it's a hearsay problem, then your primary issue is going to be hearsay. And continuing that example, your responsibility is then full to cite the law in detail. That means you have to state the law. So in relation to hearsay, for instance, you'd be taking the examiner down the path of identifying the fact that it is a hearsay problem and why it is a hearsay problem then referring to the relevant provision of the hearsay, of the Evidence Act that excludes hearsay evidence, such as Section 59, Subsection 1, and then you'd start working through the exceptions to the hearsay rule. So once you've identified the issue, the next obligation is to state the law emphatically, state each part and each component of the answer, and you apply each element of the law to the facts of the case, coming to a conclusion. And then lastly, as I've mentioned, if there is a postscript that links the area to another area of law, such as the one that I've offered throughout expert evidence requiring disclosure in accordance with the Criminal Procedure Act, you state that clearly but only briefly and then you move on to the next question. So the way that it was taught at uni is issue, rule or law application conclusion and you've got quite a bit to work with with the law digest it into its elements and apply each element to the facts of the case and that will uh, provide the satisfactory answer 
My next point of advice that you may remember from our introduction is in relation to the time limit for each question of the exam, you need to be disciplined in making sure that you don't so much as spend an extra minute on any one problem because the problem will be that you'll end up falling behind. It's an exam that requires rigour and you need to continue to keep an eye on the clock all the way throughout. Otherwise, you'll be leaving marks on the table. So if you don't answer several questions towards the end because simply you've run out of time, then that causes enormous difficulty because you might leave 10 or 15 marks unanswered when the first 50 to 70% of those marks should be a fairly easy exercise to gather. Let's assume, for instance, that the exam is 180 minutes, which is three hours, and there are 100 marks available. That means you've got 1.8 minutes per available mark. So if the question is worth 10 marks, then the timer needs to be set to 18 minutes. That is the time limit And by the 18-minute mark, you must, must, must move on to the next question. The next point is one that perhaps goes without saying, but this is the reason why. The more practice problems that you attempt before the exam, the more fluent and efficient you'll become at stating the law quickly and accurately. And the more fluent you become, the less time it takes to provide a full recitation of the available law. So that is one of the reasons why I suggest you practice as many exam papers as are available. The early attempts should not be done in a time-sensitive way, so you must be forgiving of yourself if it takes twice as long to set out the law as the time limit allows because it presumes that you'll gather momentum with each new answer that you attempt. So um, the first time you attempt to work through a difficult problem such as a hearsay scenario, it's obviously going to take a lot of time and, and probably a lot of nervous energy as well. But each successive time that you set out those provisions, it will be much uh, quicker and less painful. And the last point to note is um, as much of a uh, anxiety management tool as it is a strategy, remember that your answers in the exam don't need to be perfect in order for you to pass. So let's assume that you're aiming to gather 75% of the available marks. The way that you can maximise your chances of doing that is, of course, by being able to recite the law. Spot the issue quickly is the first uh, tip, but then the substantive one is making sure that you can recite as much of the law in um, as least time and energy as possible. And as I say, that will become easier as time goes on. But then there's the knack of being able to relate each element of the law to the facts of the case. You're aiming to gather, as I say, about three quarters of the available marks, which means that you can leave an awful lot of marks on the table and still pass. So don't aim for perfection, otherwise it tends to contradict the broader aim, which is to move as cleanly and quickly as you can through the subject matter. So aim for 75%, anything more is a bonus, but it's unnecessary for you to pass the exam. Now we're going to go through each of the topics that we looked at very briefly. So in other words, I'm assuming that you've had the chance to read and consider the material that has been provided to you, including in particular the links to the Judicial College of Victoria Digests of the Law. The first topic that we looked at was relevance. 
And, of course, you'll remember that that was the starting point. It's the precondition for admissibility of all evidence before you move on to the point of exclusion. Now, looking at past papers, firstly, relevance is not assessed uh, in every cycle so that you may not have this preliminary question asked expressly of you. It's asked every several papers, let's say. So every two or three papers, you'll get a question that seems to fall within one of two categories. One is a general question about admissibility that doesn't seem to evoke any of the specific exclusionary rules. So if it doesn't cleanly fall within one of those rules, then don't overlook the fundamental question of relevance. So it might be that the chief examiner is asking you whether the evidence is relevant. And so traditionally that's one that some candidates overlook. They don't quite know what the call of the question is because it seems so general and yet they can't seem to fit it within any of the exclusionary rules. Else, the examiner may ask you a question along the uh, styled in the manner of the trial judge has ruled that certain evidence is sufficiently re- relevant. And you're asked a question in the family of explain what this means. As you may remember, relevance is the threshold question for admissibility under the Evidence Act, and it requires your identification of Section 55 and 56, noting that irrelevant evidence is not admissible, relevant evidence is admissible, and stating the test in Section 55. So you need to evaluate uh, whether the evidence makes a fact an issue any more or less likely. As far as turning from the law to the facts of the case, You'll then need to engage with the specific facts in issue, and that's a subtle question, which is what are the facts in issue of the particular case? So which of those facts in issue does the particular evidence make any more or less likely? And as I've included in slide three, the better answers, depending on the limits of time, so if this is worth two marks, you may not have the time to offer the observations. If it's worth more than two marks, you'd have to go into a a deeper detail. You may wish to render your advice as to whether the evidence is directly relevant or circumstantially or indirectly relevant, or else recall that evidence could be relevant to credibility and not to the facts and issue in the case. In our first discussion, we then turned to identify the provisions, section 135, 136 and 137 of the Evidence Act. And I don't think we've had a single discussion since that hasn't referred to those provisions, which of course require you to evaluate probative value versus prejudicial effect in relation to a particular piece of evidence. So when you're coming to revise and deeply consider about what these provisions are, make sure that you understand and be able to recite what probative value actually is. So this is the degree to which a particular piece of evidence will impact upon the jury's capacity to evaluate a fact in issue. So some evidence will be more acutely probative and will bear very closely on that issue or disproof of an issue. Others are a bit more subtle and it's only once they're considered in the context of all of the other evidence in the case that you really understand what the probative value is. So as I've included on slide four, please be able to recite what probative value is And then you need to be able to identify what the probative value of a particular piece of evidence is, which will depend on the circumstances of the case and what the facts in issue are of that particular case. 
And conversely, can you recite what prejudicial effect is? So do you have a quick and uh, rough and ready interpretation of what prejudicial effect is in the circumstances of a case, usually along the lines of uh, the risk that the jury might be misled in its reasoning process? So start with a ready recitation of what prejudicial effect is and then be able to identify what the prejudicial effect of a particular piece of evidence is. And that will, of course, depend on the circumstances of the particular case. So there's obviously going to be greater prejudicial effect in relation to certain facts in certain criminal cases than there may be in other criminal cases or indeed civil cases. And recall Section 136. So evidence may be in for one purpose, but if a trial judge has concerns about the prejudicial effect of evidence, then it may be limited in its use, and that would need to lead to appropriate jury directions if the fact finder was a jury. So moving to slide five, after we concluded the discussion of the introductory matters, we started looking at the questioning of witnesses. If you're asked a question that relates to competence and compelability, the relevant sections of the Evidence Act that you would need to address included Section 12 of the Act, which related to the presumption of competence and the presumption of compelability. Section 13 then talked about a group of witnesses that you need to be sensitive to recognise in the facts of an exam problem, including those with difficulties in cognition by reason of youth, by reason of advanced age, by reason of other medical conditions and difficulty in communicating. So that group of witnesses may oblige you to work carefully through Section 13 of the Evidence Act, which provides really the main exception to the general presumption of competence in Section 12. Now, I'm not going to go back through every uh, particular of Section 13, but recall that it's a provision that allows for the court to receive evidence in a way that the common law had never considered. So there are three options uh, depending on how you work through the elements of Section 13 and the circumstances of the particular case. It could be that uh, the trial judge determines at voir dire that the witness is competent to give sworn evidence. It could be, indeed, this is the one that the common law never recognised, that the witness is competent to give unsworn evidence. Or the final category is that the witness is not competent to give evidence at all. So in revising Section 13, perhaps you wish to have a good look and perhaps even prepare a table as to what the test is for each of those three. The accused in a criminal case is not competent for the prosecution, as you may remember, and that is provided by Section 17 of the Evidence Act. And then when it comes to a witness who is the accused spouse or de facto spouse, parents or child, then Section 18 is the relevant provision. On occasion, the examiner may ask you to comment on the position of a relative of the accused other than their spouse, their de facto spouse, their parents or children, and they fall into no special category and accordingly they are competent and compelable. Moving on to examination in chief. This is a frequent candidate for assessment based on what the Chief Examiner has drafted in past papers. 
So the starting point in relation to examination in chief is um, section 37 and it goes hand in hand with the obligation of an examiner not to ask leading questions. So as per slide six, um, can you readily identify what a leading question is? You may even need to draft one um, when it comes to cross-examination. In examination in chief, the questioner is not allowed to ask such a question except if the topic falls within the matters noted in the bullet points on slide six, such as introductory matters, such as questions where no objection is made or matters that are not in dispute or indeed expert witnesses. And police witnesses get their own special category in section 33 of the Evidence Act. Now, given past papers, if you are asked a question about um, one of the contingencies that arises as a consequence of examination in chief and the limitation on, on asking leading questions, it will fall within one of the categories that follows. The first is the rules of refreshing memory. So if the fact pattern suggests that a witness has a lapse in memory that necessitates them requiring permission to refer to a document or thing to refresh their memory, the next part of your analysis will require you to consider whether this has happened out of court and before the witness has been um, has commenced their evidence, which falls within Section 34 or alternatively and perhaps more commonly assessed, whether the witness has um, had a lapse in memory in court, in which case the provision which governs the permission will be Section 32 of the Evidence Act. The particulars of Section 32 um, that are relevant to such a scenario we've had a look at, but indeed uh, they're also extracted on slide 7, so the witness can refer to a, an earlier document or thing to refresh their memory, provided that the other preconditions are met. So if it was made or produced when the events in question were fresh in the witness's memory or later found by the witness to be true, and leave is required. There's also the capacity for the opponent to call for such a document and the document must be produced if ordered. So that is the level of detail that would need to be included in an answer should that fact pattern require your discussion. Another area which is fairly frequently examined in the context of examination in chief is unfavourable witnesses. And this is an appealing topic for the examiner because potentially a lot of law can be examined in a relatively brief question. So the scenario where you might need to consider the rules relating to unfavourable witnesses is firstly where a party has called a witness. So recalling that this is squarely within the ambit of examination in chief. And the reason why Section 38 exists is to allow uh, the counsel who has called the witness to be able to get around the narrowness of remedies available by reason of the restriction on asking leading questions. So if the, one of the preconditions in 38 subsection 1 is met, then the court may grant leave for cross-examination. And the three preconditions under 38.1 were in the alternative. The witness has given evidence that is unfavourable to the party or the witness seems to be prevaricating in that 
you might reasonably suppose that the witness had knowledge about a subject matter but they're not making a genuine attempt to give evidence. Or the third scenario is whether the witness has at any time made a prior inconsistent statement. You will know when such a scenario arises because there will be something in the facts which give rise to the call of the question that suggests an inconsistency between an earlier statement, perhaps a statement to police in a criminal case or in a civil case, not a statement to police but something arising from discovery or something arising from a proof or a deposition before court that is inconsistent with the evidence being given in court. If such a scenario arises and it doesn't seem to involve a question of refreshing the witness's memory, then leave would be sought in the absence of the jury under 38 subsection 1. And then questions may be asked in closed form and the witness may be cross-examined by counsel who has called that witness. The matters that can be posed to the witness in cross-examination relate to the topic which has led to the grant of leave. So if there's been a prior inconsistent statement, for instance, that has precipitated leave, the cross-examination can move straight to that form that cross-examination takes about a prior inconsistent statement. And so note put bullet point three at slide eight, please recall and fuse in your mind how this procedure links so closely with the credibility rules. So just as a a neat summary, I've focused your attention on the fact that with a prior inconsistent statement, the first step might be that application for leave and a declaration that the witness is unfavourable, which would give rise to permission to cross-examine the witness as to the particulars of the prior inconsistent statement. Then, and we'll come to this in a few minutes' time, step two would be to consider the principles of admissibility of credibility evidence. So in relation to a prior inconsistent statement specifically, though we'll come to this shortly, Section 106 is the principle of admissibility in proper application of Brown and Dunn. And then Step 3 would be to render that statement admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule under Section 60. Section 43 is the last of the relevant points, which is the um, process we'll come to in a moment about cross-examining a witness about a prior inconsistent statement. The next point we noted was the law relating to the consequences in a particular contested matter where there's been a suggested failure by a party to call a witness or to tender documents or to to call other evidence. And the second point is that it's unexplained. Now, at common law, this was governed by the case of Jones and Dunkell, um, the High Court decision from 1959. And as per the first bullet point on slide nine, if there is that unexpected failure by the party to call or tender this particular evidence that you might think would lead to an inference that uh, the uncalled evidence would not have assisted the party, then the fact finder can be directed as to that fact, and that's a Jones and Dunkel direction. Jones and Dunkel still applies in civil cases, and it hasn't been overtaken by other common law or statute, but not in criminal cases. So as we'll learn when we look at the Jury Directions Act within our, not our next substantive topic because we're looking at ethics, but the one after that criminal procedure, the way that Jones of Dunkill applies in a criminal case is modified by the Jury Directions Act. 
So where the prosecution fails to call or question a witness without providing a reasonable explanation, a Section 43 direction may be sought by the defence under the Jury Directions Act. And if the trial judge is willing to give such a direction, the jury may be told that it may conclude that the witness would not have assisted the prosecution's case. And in the facts of a particular case, you'd need to turn your attention to whether that failure was unexplained. But of course, this rule does not apply to an accused in a criminal case. And the common law that underpins that point is the fact, of course, that the accused is under no obligation to give evidence, to call witnesses or to tender documents. So if to invite an inference from that would undermine that presumption and that lack of onus. Turning to cross-examination, recall, of course, this is not limited to non-leading questions. The areas which uh, call for assessment frequently or have called for assessment frequently in the past are firstly Section 41, the prohibition on improper questions as defined in Section 41, And secondly, as mentioned, Section 43, the procedure that arises where counsel wishes to cross-examine about a prior inconsistent statement. So as you may remember and see slide 10 to spark a memory, Section 43 requires that the witness be asked about the facts and if there's an inconsistency between what they say in court and an earlier statement that they may have made, then there is the responsibility to put the particular statement to them with sufficient precision that the witness can identify um, the inconsistency before it may be adduced in evidence or adduced via another witness. The next topic that arises in the context of cross-examination or even examination in chief is Brown and Dunn. And this is the common law responsibility that underpins the procedure that's noted in Section 43. So the common law principle, it's not so much of a rule, but the principle that is stated on the slide, but essentially if there is going to be evidence of contradiction or discredit or if there's going to be an invitation that a witness should not be accepted by the jury, then that needs to be put to the witness specifically so that they have the opportunity to explain or contradict the submission that is going to be made. It's a rule of fairness and non-compliance may lead to a relevant jury direction. We then moved on to the evidentiary privileges and, uh, of course, we went through them in quite a lot of detail um, and so this is just a summary. The question is often asked that relates to one or more of the privileges. Um, The topics which are more frequently assessed are client legal privilege and, to a lesser extent, the privilege against self-incrimination. Privilege against self-incrimination applies to witnesses generally It also applies to an accused, but not in relation to the charged offence. So if the accused is giving evidence, they can't rely on the privilege to decline to answer questions in relation to the charged offence, including circumstances surrounding the charged offence. But in relation to collateral matters um, and in relation to uncharged acts and in relation to every other witness, The proper procedure that's adopted in court is provided by Section 128 of the Evidence Act. And the steps in problem solving are, firstly, 1281, this has two elements to it. 
the witness must object to giving evidence, and two is on the basis that the evidence may tend to prove that the person's committed another criminal offence or is liable to a civil penalty. The third step is that the court must determine whether or not there are reasonable grounds for the objection, and the source of that is 128, subsection 2 of the Evidence Act. As indicated on slide 12, if there's no reasonable grounds for the objection, then the witness has to answer the question. But if there are reasonable grounds, step 4, under 128, subsection 3, the court's not to require the witness to give evidence, and this step is informative. The court needs to inform the witness. They need not give the evidence unless they're required by the court to do so. And the court will give a certificate if the witness willingly gives the evidence without being required to do so. Or it may be that they may need to do so after a determination. And next is that the court must explain to the witness the effect of the certificate. Now, some witnesses will then give evidence without a determination. So the fact pattern would then end at that step. But if the witness refuses, step 5, 128, subsection 4, the court may require the witness to give the evidence. If the court is satisfied, the evidence doesn't tend to prove the witness has committed an offence under a foreign country and the interests of justice require the witness give the evidence. So the first is a negative determination that the evidence doesn't disclose foreign liability and the second is a positive determination that is the interests of justice require that the witness give the evidence. And then if the witness has to give the evidence or chooses to give the evidence in a certificate issue, then the certificate protects the answers and any derivative use of those answers from being used against the person in a Victorian proceeding. The next privilege that we looked at was an immunity, and that is public interest immunity, matters of state, section 130, subsection 1 of the Evidence Act. Now, should there be a situation where evidence of answers or or documents may reveal sensitive matters of state, then you'd need to consider the um, privilege in section 130, subsection 1 of the Evidence Act and evaluate the public interest in admitting that information or document into evidence on the one hand and the public interest in preserving secrecy or confidentiality on the other hand. As I've included in slide 14 at bullet point 2, this obliges you to identify those competing policies in the circumstances of the case with precision. So what is the public interest in preserving confidentiality in the particular circumstances? So the extraction from 130, is it a national security issue? Does it identify an informer? Does it identify a sensitive police procedure, for instance? Identify exactly what the issue is that might raise a concern as to revelation of such a matter of state. And on the other hand, what's the public interest in favour of disclosure in the circumstances of a particular case? So could it, this is the the greatest public purpose in favour of disclosure, could it exculpate the accused? So you need to identify the two with precision and then endeavour to weigh the two. And 130 subsection 5, which is now slide 15, the court is obliged to take into account certain matters that are listed on the slide in resolving the dispute under 130 subsection 1. Client legal privilege, as mentioned, is the most commonly assessed privilege in the bar exam. 
So to be able to have a process of problem solving that you can easily call upon is a very good idea. Happily, it's fairly easy to recognise you are looking for a client and a lawyer as defined in Section 117 of the Evidence Act. So that includes employees and agents of clients and lawyers. You need to be able to recognise a confidential communication. So what is it about the communication that is suggestive of it being in confidence or a confidential document likewise? It needs to have some sensitivity about it. Now next, if the confidential communication or confidential document relates to communications between a lawyer and client for the dominant purpose of legal advice, the privilege applies. That's section 118. Here I have two notes and I'm refreshing your memory because I've told you about this before. Firstly, that is irrespective of whether it is non-litigious or there's litigation that's on foot. You don't need to move into 119 if it's a simple confidence between a lawyer and a client. The second point is, of course, dominant purpose of legal advice means just that. So if there are split purposes of the communication, some relate to personal issues, some relate to business activities, some relate to legal advice, consider which one predominates. And it's if and only if that that's for the purpose of legal advice that the discussion is privileged. Under 118, note please that if a confidential document is prepared by a third party, the dominant purpose of that lawyer providing legal advice or instructions the privilege applies. So 118, which doesn't require litigation, also protects a third party within the umbrella of client legal privilege. Then separately, the litigation privilege under 119. So if there is legal services being provided in relation to legal proceedings, then the privilege will extend to confidential communications between the client and a third party or the lawyer and a third party or a confidential document, provided that the confidential communication, the confidential document involving these, this third party or these third parties relate to that dominant purpose of legal services relating to the proceedings being offered. If you have a client-lawyer privilege scenario and you've worked through those steps, definitional and considered whether it's a, uh, an issue under 118 or 119, Lastly, please note that client legal privilege will be lost in circumstances discussed in 122, either express waiver or imputed waiver, or separately, there'll be no privilege in the first place if the communication or document relates to furtherance of the commission of a crime or fraud or in furtherance of a deliberate abuse of power. Now, the next issue that we discussed was the credibility of witnesses, which is very examinable. Indeed, it seems to be examined in every bar exam. And we've already um, alluded to this because it is often paired with a scenario involving either cross-examination or cross-examination of an unfavourable witness, which starts as examination in chief and then moves to cross-examination. If a scenario arises in relation to credibility of witnesses, then the starting point is to mention sections 101A and 102 of the Evidence Act, noting, of course, that credibility evidence is generally inadmissible unless it falls within one of the exceptions. And then our attention shifts to which one or more of the relevant exception applies. 
Typically, Section 103 is the starting point. So the credibility rule will not apply to evidence adduced in cross-examination of a witness if the evidence could substantially affect the assessment of the credibility of the witness. Now, this arises in every cross-examination where counsel seeks to discredit a witness. And it also arises in an unfavourable witness scenario, of course. So if a witness has been declared unfavourable, Questions can only relate to credibility and so 103 is the provision which governs admissibility of credibility uh, questions in cross-examination. Slide 19 relates to the credibility of an accused in a criminal case and this would only fall for discussion if, as per bullet point one, the accused has offered some explanation which requires the jury to assess credibility. It could be a police interview, it could be evidence in trial, but where an accused, as is their right in a criminal case, has not proffered any explanation, either pre-trial or at trial, forget credibility because there's no evidence for the jury to assess. So let's assume that the accused in your fact pattern has given evidence and is being asked questions in cross-examination. In such a case, you start with the fact that credibility evidence is not admissible, as we've discussed. 103 is the exception, but 104 provides special protection from accused in a criminal proceeding. So as you'll remember from our deep discussion, 104 requires noting that an accused must not be cross-examined about their credibility unless the court gives leave Leave should not be granted unless the course has been taken by the accused that tends to prove a prosecution witness has a tendency to be untruthful and is relevant solely or mainly to the witness's credibility, except questions relating to events which the, which, about which the accused is being prosecuted or investigated. That leave hurdle does not apply if the prosecutor wishes to cross-examine the accused about simple matters of bias or motive to be untruthful, questionable memory or prior inconsistent statements. Now, the last relevant point to to cross-examination credibility rules is 106, rebutting denials. We have now spoken at considerable length about for instance, the prior inconsistent statement being put to a witness with the purpose of discrediting that witness under the credibility rules. In that scenario, a witness is stuck with two choices. One is to admit the contents of the prior inconsistent statement, in which case there's no need to reduce the statement because the oral evidence takes precedence, including that admission of the earlier statement. But if the witness denies making the prior inconsistent statement, 106 provides a mechanism for admissibility of the statement itself. 106 of the Evidence Act, slide 20, indicates that the credibility rule won't apply to evidence that's relevant to credibility and is adduced otherwise than from the witness whose credibility is in question. If in cross-examination of the witness, the substance of the evidence was put to the witness and the witness denied or didn't admit or agree to the substance of the evidence and the court gives leave. But one of the exceptions to the requirement of leave is that they've made a prior inconsistent statement. So provided that the proper processes have been followed, whether it's an unfavourable witness under 38 
whether it's any cross-examination relating to a topic such as a prior inconsistent statement under 43, um, 106 will allow the cross-examiner to be able to adduce that credibility evidence from another source if the witness has refused or failed to accept it. And that, as you'll see from slide 20, also applies to prior convictions and allegations that the witness is biased or has a motive for being untruthful. The final point in relation to credibility is re-establishing credibility. And 108 subsection 3 permits an examiner to re-examine about a prior consistent statement of a witness if during cross-examination evidence of a prior inconsistent statement has been admitted or it's been suggested to the witness that their evidence is fabricated or reconstructed and the court gives leave to adduce that evidence. Not uncommon and not uncommonly tested. Now, we've talked about the credibility of the accused. A separate but often related point is the character of the accused. So it's related because um, in relation to the prior bad character of the accused, generally that evidence is not admissible. That credibility mechanism under Section 104 is one process by which, for instance, the accused prior convictions may be admitted if counsel has taken a course which involves that, um, let's say, aggressive, I don't mean personally aggressive, but has taken a trial strategy that involves allegations of uh, uh, some impropriety on the part of a a witness, and the accused has then chosen to give evidence. So under 104, they might lose their shield in relation to bad character. Section 110 governs the admissibility of good character evidence, and it allows for an accused to adduce good character evidence either generally or in a particular respect under 110 subsection 1. But if that process has been adopted, then, for instance, the prosecution may be able to reduce evidence in rebuttal under 110 subsection 2 or 3. So this is the second mechanism by which an accused prior history may become known to the jury if they have adduced evidence of good character and the prosecution has relied upon bad character evidence in rebuttal. Please note, under Section 112 of the Evidence Act, if the mechanism for adducing the bad character evidence is cross-examination of the accused, then leave is required from the court. And you'll remember, in relation to every grant of leave under the Evidence Act, the court must consider the effect of Section 192. The last mechanism um, by which previous uh, bad character evidence may be adduced before a jury in relation to a trial is tendency and coincidence. And this is often examined and it is also, it tends to be feared by some of the candidates. In relation to tendency and coincidence, we've looked at it exceptionally closely, but Firstly, recall and note, please, what these terms mean. Slide 23. Tendency evidence is evidence of character, reputation, conduct, or a tendency the person has or had, which is adduced to prove that A, the person has a tendency to behave in a particular way, and or B, the accused has a tendency to have a particular state of mind from which the jury may infer a fact in issue. So that relates to something that is known about the accused. 
coincidence evidence is evidence of two or more similar events or circumstances adduced to prove that because they're so similar, it's improbable they occurred coincidentally from which the jury may infer a fact in issue. So coincidence reasoning relates to similarities about the crimes themselves. So something about the scenes or something about, for instance, the allegations made by each complainant that suggests perhaps that it was the same person that committed each. Now, the stages that need to be addressed in an analysis of the admissibility of tendency evidence are these, slide 24. Firstly, notice must be given at 971A. Two is you must assess that the evidence has significant probative value under 971B. And this assessment is undertaken using the two-step test laid down by the High Court in Hughes. You must first evaluate the extent to which the evidence proves the tendency. Two is evaluate the extent to which that tendency evidence makes the facts and issue more likely. Note, of course, that analysis of significant probative value does not require an assessment of similarity between the allegations confer the Court of Appeal of Victoria decision line of decisions culminating in Volkovsky. That's now obsolete. So it doesn't require similarities. Instead, you consider the unity, so the unification between the earlier conduct or sometimes later, Fennig is such a case, or the other misconduct and the charged acts. Consider also the specificity of the tendency. And thirdly, separately and finally, if the prosecution adduces the evidence in a criminal case, you'll need to consider the prejudicial effect under 101 subsection 2. So consider what the prejudicial effect of the evidence is in the circumstances of the particular case. So what is prejudicial effect? As you may remember, the risk the jury may be misled in its reasoning process. So in a case, for instance, where the evidence is morally repugnant, where the evidence is weak, where multiple similar allegations, for instance, may encourage a jury to make assumptions, they're examples of an improper process of reasoning. And please always note whether there are relevant jury directions that may be given which might mitigate the prejudice in the circumstances of a particular case. And the last point, 101.2 only applies where the prosecution relies on the evidence in a criminal case. So if the accused is relying on it in a criminal case or if it's a civil case, that 101 analysis does not apply. By comparison, coincidence analysis is a little more straightforward, not much more straightforward, but a little more. So building on our first slide, please be clear how the evidence is relied on. Is it tendency, is it coincidence or both? And how do you frame that consideration? So what tendency is it being alleged? What tendency is it relied upon to prove? Um, How is it said that the scenes or the descriptions are so similar that it could lead to coincidence reasoning? Steps one, a coincidence notice is filed and served, uh, so procedural mechanism 981A. Two, you must assess whether the evidence has significant probative value under 981B, but here you assess solely by reference to the similarity in events and or circumstances narrated, described, and from which can be inferred. 
You, in this process, also consider countervailing or weakening factors. So the passage of time, the risk of collusion, contamination, where it's been admitted and there's no assessment as to credibility or reliability, will weaken the probative value of the coincidence aspect of reasoning. So you have to come to a conclusion at stage two and then you move on to stage three. If the prosecution adduces the evidence in a criminal case, then you need to assess the prejudicial effect and consider whether the probative value substantially outweighs prejudicial effect. And once again, consider what the prejudicial effect is of the evidence in the particular case. So what is it about the allegation? What is it about the particular matter that might encourage the jury into the risk of it being misled? And of course, consider whether there are relevant jury directions that can be offered that would mitigate the prejudice. Moving to slide 26, identification evidence. Please note and recall that there are linked points here as to first admissibility and then secondly jury directions that we'll come back to in criminal procedure. So note the meaning of identification evidence which relates to any assertion by a witness that the accused was or resembles a person who was present at the commission of the offence. So warnings apply generally and we'll come back to this and that is whether the uh, identification evidence is visual identification evidence or whether it is um, picture identification evidence or whether it's purely identification evidence falling outside one of those two categories. So we'll come back to the warnings that are given, the Jury Directions Act version of the Domican warning and here we just focus our attention on admissibility. Firstly, if there are these circumstances of a visual identification evidence, including an identification parade, you must consider Section 114 of the Evidence Act and its provisions. If there is evidence of picture identification evidence, then you must consider the application of Section 115 of the Evidence Act and see uh, slide 27 for the particulars of Section 115. And then, as mentioned, relevant jury directions if it survives the test for admissibility. Moving to opinion evidence, this is not just regularly assessed, it's, it's nearly always assessed, either one or both of lay opinion and expert evidence. Note, please, that evidence of an opinion is generally inadmissible under Section 76, and there are numerous exceptions of which we can focus in this revision exercise on lay opinion, section 78, and expert opinion, section 79. Lay opinions, I've set out their meaning at slide 28. So if an opinion is based on what the person saw, heard, or otherwise perceived, and evidence of the opinion is necessary to obtain an adequate account or understanding of their perception, then that evidence is admissible as the exception to the general prohibition on opinion evidence. And in relation to expert evidence, see section 79 of the Evidence Act, slide 29. Preconditions, a person must have specialised knowledge, and two is it must be based on their training, study or experience. So if there's specialised knowledge and that knowledge is based on their training, study or experience, the opinion rule won't apply to evidence of their uh, opinion that's wholly or substantially based on that knowledge. But bullet point two at slide 29, we're looking for specialised knowledge and it must be 
based on their training, study or experience and their opinion must be wholly or substantially based on that knowledge. And it can still be subject to exclusion or limitation under 135, 136 or 137. Note, if you're going to use an expert evidence analysis, it's prudent to end with Section 80. The ultimate issue rule is abolished, and that's another difference between the Evidence Act and the Common Law. Relatively recently in our memory are admissions and hearsay, and I say that because the preceding discussions to this discussion related to those two topics. So these are reviewed in brief. Slide 30. If you come across a scenario that involves either a, an express reference to admission, such as a, an accused um, police interview, or there's some other concession which is against interest, then you need to consider the admissions problem-solving strategy. The first step is to identify really particularise how the statement or assertive conduct is said to be an admission So that demonstrates your understanding of what an admission is as being against interest. Note that it's admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule under Section 81, provided it's limited to first-hand repetition. And then if it is a scenario that um, involves criminal proceedings, my suggestion is that you then pause to aggregate all of the facts of the problem that are relevant to all of the heads of exclusion. So the accused vulnerabilities, whether it's youth, whether it's illiteracy, whether it's mental or physical health issues, and then all of the factors which undermine or impugn the police or interrogator's conduct. So you draw upon that same pool with different emphases in the steps that follow. Second step is consider exclusion as a matter of law. And here you might remember the requirement that a trial judge will exclude evidence of an admission under Section 84 if the admissions were influenced by violent, inhuman or degrading conduct, and that's whether the proceedings are criminal or civil, and or Section 85, where there's a live issue as to reliability. You can work through the elements of each test. The third step then is to draw on the the pool of facts with slightly different focuses to consider exclusion in the exercise of judicial discretion. Section 90, as you may remember, obliges you to consider fairness to the accused in a criminal proceeding. You need to, to identify with precision why you consider that reception of an admission made by the accused would be unfair to the accused in the circumstances of the particular case. And further and separately, Section 138, consider the discretion that arises with improperly or illegally obtained evidence. And point to note, this also applies to real evidence and not just admissions. And that is the order in which you approach the question, as you will remember, Start with exclusion at law before moving on to exclusion at discretion because if you're successful on the legal ground, then you don't need to rely on the judge's discretion, but you'd still argue both in the alternative. Now, last stop in our discussion of the law of evidence in an hour is hearsay. Hopefully, this is still fresh in your memory based on our last discussion. In such a problem, the fact a factual trigger for discussion of this legal issue is that you are looking for an out-of-court declaration and an in-court reporter. So step one is always to identify what is the previous representation 
and identify how it is said to create a hearsay problem. Now, point two is you then need to consider with confidence what is the purpose of tendering the evidence. Here, it could be one of two limbs. If it's to prove the existence of a fact that can reasonably be supposed the person intended to assert, the evidence is hearsay and prima facie inadmissible under Section 59. If, on the other hand, the previous representation is admissible under some other purpose, prima facie, the hearsay rule does not apply under Section 60, though it can still be excluded or limited in the exercise of discretion. And the prior inconsistent statement is the key example of that. Next, and finally, if the evidence is hearsay and prima facie inadmissible, you then need to focus your attention on exceptions to the hearsay rule. If you are involved in civil proceedings, please focus on section 63 if the witness is available is unavailable and 64 if the witness is available. If it is criminal proceedings, please focus on 65 where the witness is unavailable and 66 if the witness is available. And further, and separately to that, consider whether the out-of-court declarant was making a contemporaneous representation as to intention, knowledge, state of mind, in which case the evidence may be admissible and bypass the hearsay rule under 66A and consider business records, 69, electronic communications, 71, etc. And that concludes our wrap-up of evidence in an hour. You're now fully equipped to start working on practice problems that have been released by the Victorian Bar, and that is past papers. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.